0: We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene
1: and I'm Raginton, Ben Raginton.
0: <laughs> and tonight we are looking at the second 6 million dollar man telemovie Wine, Women and War. Steve Austin, bionic spy, is in Ag- Alexandria on a mission. His goal, use his bionic powers to get aboard a boat and steal important documents from a safe. His mission is a failure and he is wounded. Back in Washington, Steve is now a prisoner in the hospital for his own protection, of, of course. Oscar Goldman, Steve's boss Isn't getting Steve's cooperation and So he decides to make him do the job With or without his cooperation Steve's got other plans though An old friend of his lets on That he is, was going on leave And has a beautiful beach house And an accommodating young lady Lined up for the week But he's just been called to Tokyo Steve breaks out of the hospital And takes his friend's place On the first class flight Steve is seated next to a beautiful Russian woman, Katrina Velana. He assumes she's his friend's accommodating young lady. And tries to explain that he's, that he's not interested in the services that she's offering. She is not, however, who or what he thinks she is. And he makes a fool of himself. What a coincidence! The Russian woman is picked up at the airport in a car with Russian diplomatic flags and taken to the villa right next to Steve's. <laughs> Another piece in the puzzle. The Russians are here to buy weapons. From an arms dealer, Arlen Findletter, the same dealer that Steve attempted to rob in Alexandria. Yes. It's all a setup. Oscar arranged all this, and now Steve must find out what the dealer has that the Russians want. It turns out they have Russian and American ballistic nuclear weapons, and they plan to steal and sell a brand new, not even launched yet, American nuclear submarine. Steve and Katrina team up and defeat the evil arms dealer, paving the way for a little, uh, American-Russian cooperation in the future. So, um, second Six Million Dollar Man movie. Quite a departure from the first one. Oh, uh, you think? I, I, I do. I think it, uh dramatically um, different. Stylistically? 20%. Yes. I mean, yes. right from the opening
1: credits.
0: I love those opening credits. They should have God, kept those. God, those are just sickening. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, 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 just, ah, for think... our
0: listeners benefit, I, I will say uh, that this one, uh, this movie was taken over by Glenn Larson. Oh yeah. When I saw his name in the credits, I went, oh, of course it all and makes if you, sense. And you know, if you have anything, Glenn Larson, we're talking uh, Battlestar Galactica, uh, Buck, Buck Rogers, Rogers um, uh, Knight Rider. Yeah. Um, and he and Stu Phillips uh, did all the music for many of the shows that he did, including this and Glenn and larson apparently is a bit of a song guy too because he wrote this song the six million dollar man and they got dusty Dusty springfield
1: Springfield to sing it
0: to sing it and she turns in a performance that combined with lyrics that a seven-year-old would think were clever uh turns in a fingernails on chalkboard performance uh it really really sets the tone for this for this show uh (laughs) but but that that aside what did you think
1: um, well, there's a reason why I gave the intro that I did, because the, mo- I mean, right from the first moment we see Steve, I mean, here he is, he's wearing a tux, mm-hmm. uh, it's high stakes gambling, and it just screamed James Bond, James Bond.
0: but trashy. Absolutely, it's James Bond, it, it, it is, and, and I guess that was stated, uh, Glenn Larson, that was kind of his, his take on, I mean, everything, he gives Bond-like puns, he, he's a bit of a lech. Well, uh,
1: yeah, especially towards the very end when uh yeah, of course, um just like with Bond uh, when he's with the, one of his Bond women and he he succeeds in whatever, you know, death-defying mission that he has to has to accomplish and then um 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 well, uh <laughs> It's you know the only, yeah there's, only, uh, th- he, there's nothing
0: here. It's not like Moonraker where you know oh Bond God. and Holly Goodhead are floating in space under the covers. And, Take me and around we the world
1: the, one more time, James.
0: <laughs> hey, he's keeping you know. I think he's attempting re-entry. Ah, you know, I mean it's not nothing like that. This film ends, and I want to talk about how this film ends. But I mean, it's pretty clear that the two have gotten well. well they got they close made it for network did, television, so they did obviously... do their thing on the. Boat. yeah so uh before steve then basically ties her up and abandons her on you know and escapes but uh, um y- yeah 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 i, I want to save talking about the ending till till a little later in the in the story because uh, th- it troubled me deeply but uh anyway yeah yes it's bond it's um And I guess it kind of makes sense because, you know, Bond at this stage of the game was super agent with cool electronic gadgets. And and really, isn't that what Steve Austin is? The, gadgets he is he just the gadget is built-in. Yeah.
1: yeah, he is the gadget.
0: I mean, we, uh, he actually got to use the eye. He did. He got to use the eye. Uh, still, no sound effects, though.
1: No, and it, it's only it only provides um, night vision, which you know, which is he cool. du- which he will have. I mean, it'll have infrared vision, uh, in, as far as the series goes. But nothing telescopic. But it's better than what we had before, which was nothing.
0: Nothing. Yeah, we, ne- we never got any use for it in the in the previous one. Um, I'm frankly, I'm not a fan of this. Neither am I. Um, you mean I, I did this, this movie? The movie, no. Yeah,
1: I, I'm not. I'm not keen on it.
0: And, and I watched it with with um, David, who has done a few episodes of Fusion Patrol in the past, and and he was uh, equally unimpressed. By oh, this. but He's the like, running, well, there's, there's there's you know, time I'm never going to get back was pretty much his comment. Yeah,
1: but but the running and the opening credits, David must have loved that.
0: <laughs> they were they were wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. No, but the,
1: really, this one, It. I mean, it, and the thing that kind of galls me is that there's some cast members in here that I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, gosh, I've got my notes. I mean, uh, well, for some, I like Earl Holloman. I've okay. always enjoyed him, um, even though he he feels he comes off as a little bit two dimensional, but more so than than I've seen in the past. <laughs> but but I do like him, you know. But then but then he got two characters, you know. And I'm not going to mention Brett Eckland.
0: Uh, I'm not going p- I'm not going to pick on Earl Hall- Well, I am going to pick on Earl Hallman. Earl Hallman Hall- Hall always comes off as two dimensional to me. Well, I remember you used to watch him on Police Woman all the time, yeah. and I just I don't know. There's this something not, about the it's the yeah, same performance. It, I
1: suppose it could be. Uh, but what I really dug were um, David McCallum. although. He he felt underused.
0: Yes, he was underused. Terribly he was really in underused. it for a little bit. And
1: I um, really, really like him. I always have, you know, back from uh, the man from Uncle Day's. And uh, and the actor who plays uh, Finletter, whose name I just Eric lost. Braden. Thank you, Eric Braden. I had it written down someplace. Oh, I've yeah, always liked great. him. You know, but even he felt. You know, that's the other thing that kind of bothered me. I mean, he he's really played some some interesting characters in the past. You know, you know the the, the good guy, so to speak. You know, when you look at like Colossus, the Forbidden Project, to uh, a man who's just comes off looking really nice and turns it to be a slime ball in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I mean, he's he's got the ability to... to...
0: Okay, so uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Actually, you know, one of the things about that film, and of course Eric Braden's performance is, is part of what makes it work, is he's not exactly a bad guy in that film. He yeah. is doing exactly what he thinks is the right thing to yeah. do. Yeah. And he makes a good argument for it. These uh, apes yeah. will destroy the world if we don't get rid of them. You know, in the end, um, they, you know, they agree that sterilization should work. But, I mean, it's it's that kind of performance that Braden can do with that weird accent that he got. Oh, he's I love got. that accent. <laughs> I <laughs>
1: dig that accent because it could, it's not,
0: it's not your typical
1: cliche, you know, because I remember, oh, God. I, I hate to say, you know, the 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 German accent, which is, you know, the, that Eastern European kind of accent, which has always been applied towards... Heavies. I mean, we we heard uh, Laurence Olivier use it um, in The Running Man. Oh my God! Did I actually bring that one up?
0: You did. Yeah, you've seen that, no?
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Is it safe? You know, things like that. Uh, so, but but he, uh, but Eric's accent uh, is more subdued. It gives him a sense of oh, I don't know. Um, it it makes him. Oh, shoot, the words got the word went right out of my head, and I hate it when this happens. Um, it, uh, almost a sense of um, aristocracy. He comes off a little aristocratic in that way. He's classy. Very classy, yeah. absolutely. I mean, he he could be like, you know, any any Bond any
0: good Bond villain. And he is he is genuinely German. Oh, yes, he is. So, so you, I'm I I did not mean to imply that his accent was fake or in any way his oh, no, it's, it's a it's genuine accent. It's just it's just that he always has to play a part with that accent and that does inform the characters that he gets uh given, you know. It it, it just That's just the way Hollywood is. So uh, heavies are heavies heavy. Although I guess he did a long stint on The Young and the Restless. He still is. I, I don't know. I'm, I haven't actually watched an The only reason I
1: know is because I... We have a big screen television in our break room at work. And many times that soap is on when I'm going in there for lunch. <laughs> and I have seen him on the screen. So I know that that's what he's doing. Well, and he, and he's him. been on there for a very, very, very long time.
0: Well, good for him. Yeah. you know, Good on you. Strong, solid paycheck. I, I have no... I have no looking down my nose at soap opera actors. That's a it
1: perfectly can be, legitimate job. It, it, it's 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 a very hard acting job, to be honest. Oh, I imagine it is yeah. because I mean you, it's you're you're learning a new script every day. You tape every day. Yep. So yeah, it's it's very demanding. He probably finds it, you know, some actors find that exhilarating. I'm sure he does, otherwise he wouldn't keep doing it. But it's a credit to him because I and I've always found him to be a very good actor. That's why I was very happy to see him in this particular episode, but again, I don't I, I felt like he could have been used better. But then again, this is really about Steve and Brett.
0: Yeah yeah i and i and i do think um that they were going they were going for bond villain yeah you know i, I think they they were casting around and said Who can we get that can do bond villain mm-hmm. and somebody popped up with eric braden's name uh and, the accent and... i'm sure helped oh i'm sure and, and you know and the 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 demeanor and mm-hmm. that he's that he carries doing anything. I mean, I I don't think I've ever seen anything that he didn't come off as, you know, it's not saying he can't act in different ways, but I mean, he he has a type, and that type is somewhat formal, somewhat stiff, somewhat proper, somewhat German. (laughs) (laughs) stereotype yeah well that's his type that's
1: his type and it it, it works for him i've just seen it played better Mm. well i I, I think better script would have helped well a better script possibly um maybe even better direction um hard to say again but it, it was nice to see him nonetheless and 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 like i said same thing with david mccallum i have always been a huge fan of his uh for a very very long time and to see him used so poorly was terribly disappointing
0: I have to admit, though, I did have a hard time buying his haircut. Oh, that
1: was pretty tragic, yeah.
0: That that was definitely a I'm-not-cutting-my-hair-for-this-part kind of haircut. And fair enough, considering the size of the part. But uh, I just, I'm just i having trouble believing that Russian scientists were getting away with that sort of seventy shaggy look. Oh, I don't think so. No, no, not at all. But then, I, you know, Ilya Kuryakin always was a little bit surprisingly hairy. For, uh, not like that. No, not like this. No, this is this is like. Hey, I don't have to cut it anymore after I finished. Ban from Uncle. <laughs> yeah, and, and besides,
1: going. you know, ma- you, the argument could be made that Ilya grew his hair out because he was he wasn't living in
0: Russia at that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, not, not with um, not with his Russian friend here in this episode. Um. Okay. So. Uh... Poor man's James Bond. I, mm-hmm. I think that sums it up. I think this. Oh, is... it does. You know, there's, there's been countless ripoffs of James Bond films. Very, very few of them rise to the level of um, standing on their own. Uh, Flint films, mm-hmm. in like Flint, um, maybe some of the Mad Helm films, uh, but you know, for different reasons. And. Um, Uh, But when you go to a TV budget and schedule, obviously you can't put into it what they do in a major motion picture. So I I can't fault them for not being able to recreate the Bond formula on, you know, probably a week's shooting and a a couple of location shots that, that were supposed to look like some sort of tropical island. Um, but it clearly looked yeah, like California. And, oh, and and inter- oh, you think? Well, the, the, some
1: of it, yeah, a lot of it looked like California. Some of it could have passed for Bahamas, having been there myself. So I, re- I did recognize, you know, some some topography. Thought, yeah, that.
0: Could Could be, maybe, but I highly doubt it. Hard to tell if they were very crafty with stock footage. They could, um, they they might be able to make it work. But yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, I'm not going to pick it on that. So if I'm reading this correctly, um, there are, I don't have the number right in front of me, four or five Six Million Dollar Man novels, starting with Cyborg by Martin Caden and it appears that perhaps Wine, Women, and War was one of them. Indeed. I have been unable to get any of them except for the original and... Oh, I can't remember which the other one is. Operation Doomsday or something like that. Um which is not this one obviously um Mm -hmm. so i don't know how closely this follows the book but then it's got a screenplay credit by glenn larson so he put his indelible (laughs) and his and his feel and i'm not picking on glenn larson i like a lot of stuff that glenn larson has done he's Uh. he's had a track record of producing some enjoyable if lightweight shows I, I, I'm not I, I don't think he got this one right though oh I, I agreed don't, I don't think he got this one right at all and I don't know whether you know looking at if we'd had Martin Caden's book to look at whether or not he was going to be James Bond in that um, we we talked and I'm, I'll throw it in now before we carry on we talked a little bit when we were looking at the first movie that I had read Cyborg but I could not remember a whole heck of a lot of it and I just want to throw out a couple of things that may inform what the second book was would have been like Um you know, in the original book, actually, Oscar Goldman was his direct boss. So that character was in the original book. Right. Um, he was an astronaut. Steve was, I should say, a colonel, mm-hmm. um, the kind of guy who joined the army during the war so that he could fly helicopters and planes. And then when he got out of the war, he joined the Air Force so that he could get into like the test pilot and the NASA program. So he, he liked flying. Gung, he's gung ho. And he's got multiple degrees in engineering and aeronautics and stuff. I mean, he is he is a Superman already. He is the best of the best. He's an outstanding athlete with a black belt in martial arts and all that stuff. I mean, he's... The youngest astronaut in the space program, and the the one thing about that that was kind of interesting because everything they set this guy up to be like he is the best, the best we 've got he really is, and he got into the space program as a as backup the, he was the guy was going on the last mission, got sick or something, and he got pulled in at the last minute as a backup, which is how he ended up going to the moon which you'd think that almost kind of sounds like an owl also ran as opposed to being the best of the best. But anyway, these are the reasons why the government felt that he was a suitable candidate to become their super weapon. And there is none of this, eh, I'm not going to be your super weapon kind of nonsense. He is a military man who has a duty and, and goes for it. And Rudy Wells is not the bionic scientist.
1: No, he's not.
0: In the book. Ru- Rudy Wells is the flight surgeon mm-hmm. and a, a, a prominent flight surgeon.
1: Which makes sense if you go back to the uh the, the first pilot and um, was aware wh-
0: yeah of the guy who was doing the bionics program in the air force that would
1: make a heck of a lot more sense so uh, he went
0: to him it would explain why rudy was also in attendance uh during uh, steve's test flight flight and then the guy who the bionics and rudy went to the oso the head guy anthony mckay who's in neither the book or the movie and asked for the money to do the project and so that's how that that thing but at at the end, when he goes off in his mission, he has got like, he's got air tanks in his legs that he can pull out a little hose and breathe underwater. And he's got, he can flip down his toes and pull out webs so that he can swim underwater. And he's got um, a camera built into his eye. He's still blind, but he can push the side of his head and the camera takes pictures. <laughs> huh. So, I mean, reading it and, you know, he's like a scar chomping uh, guy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like reading the first novel you get to the end of it it's like yeah, this is like a Mac Bolan mm-hmm. kind of thing this is this is meant to be a men's adventure um, high tech espionage it's, there's all sorts of stuff there's like robotic dolphins that they use for subterfuge and this you know like swimming to the shore inside of a robotic dolphin to hide from the, it's it's really it's really adventure novel thing and you, at the end of it you're just like yeah this they can just set this guy up and this is what he's going to be doing he's going to be doing all this sort of high-tech infiltrating spy missions so i get it i get this film where they might pop in and say Well, oh, you know we're just going to start the spy adventures i mm. get it i just yeah. don't know whether wine women and war the book bears much resemblance to this movie which has clearly been been bondified and i'll give you an example i, I mentioned the matt helm films earlier mm-hmm. which are you know chalk and cheese to some people you either love them or you hate them but if you ever read the Matt Helm books they are also in that men's adventure line Matt Helm super spy for the Americans he walks into a room 37 guys bad guys he walks out of the room scratched up bloody and 37 dead mut- mutilated corpses on the inside he's he's that kind of guy there is he's just a professional ruthless killer and for, for good old U.S. of A. But uh, you go look at the Matt Helm films, he's a boozy, Dean Martin, sort of womanizing... It, it's sort of a spoof Bond, uh-huh. which is why people who are fans of Matt Helm particularly don't what? like the films, <laughs> because they took them and changed them. So I, I kind of feel like maybe that's what could have happened here, that, that maybe they took that character of Steve Austin, they said, well, he's going to be a spy. Who's the most famous spy? James Bond. Let's go. Sounds about right. <clears throat> uh, anyway... Okay, so I, I just wanted to bring that up because we'd mentioned the book and, and a couple of things last time, and we didn't I didn't know because I hadn't had the chance to pull, find it on my bookshelf and read it. And I and wanted to go into it because it does sort of inform this this process, I think, a little bit. Okay, um, Steve, mission at the beginning. Um, the whole thing with the setting up the playlist to play "God Bless America" and all that, or whatever it was, stars. I forget which one it was. Now, um, all very kind of pithy, all very sort of. Uh, I. Like. But when he comes back after being shot up and they put him in the hospital, he's in prison. They've put him. They've basically locked him up. Yeah. Which is what we were talking about at the end of the first film. What do they do with Steve between between assignments? They just keep him in that hotel or oh, hotel.
1: Listen to me. Listen to me. The hospital. Be- because we remember I remember we heard with um Oliver uh mm-hmm. from the uh the first movie uh, when he throws out that question you know can you kind of like turn him off and on you know and Rudy was like offended six ways from Sunday on that one uh, but essentially that 's what they got going yeah, just yeah, they just keep him in there and until it 's time for a mission then they 'll let him loose at least that 's how by the way, not looks. part of the book,
0: not part of the book, as far as I can tell so that that was a manifestation of the writers um, of the first movie. but here we have him kind of you know it sounds like he 's not being shut down, but it does sound like between assignments he 's i mean yeah I can kind of i mean I can kind of see that i mean you 've put six million dollars into this guy. <laughs> maybe you can't have him running around doing his grocery shopping and stuff. I'm, I'm not going to justify that as being the right thing to do but I can see that I can see the rationale behind it to some uh, degree yes I, I'm not gonna I... let you drive the tank home Steve. no
1: I, no I agree <laughs> I agree I, I could I could see them wanting to do that I could see that also
0: being the source of enormous friction yeah and I think they were kind of going for that now I uh, was watching an interview yesterday with Richard Anderson um talking about his time on the six million dollar man and he was saying that um they he didn't give specifics but there was just a feeling that uh although darren mcgavin did a great job they didn't have the chemistry that they wanted between the characters Mm -hmm. um and that was why that got turned to oscar goldman which is weird that they then put it back to the name of the guy who was in the books um And I guess they called him up and said, well, you know, do you want to do this part? Uh, Yes, I do. Well, here's the catch. You have to be there tomorrow. (laughs) So, uh, and he did that. So he was uh, apparently not in the best of, according to Anderson, not in the best of condition on his first day of shooting, which is him there in the hospital talking with Steve, Mm -hmm. which is why he put on the dark glasses Indeed. Which became the Oscar Goldman trademark trademark glasses. (laughs) Oh, I had (laughs) no idea. That's what he claims. Mm. You know, this is a guy talking... 30 years later um, I like it convention I did, circuit I've decided stuff that, so. I,
1: I've decided that the story is true <laughs>
0: we're going with it yeah going we're going with, with it. it it sounds good to me yeah um, it's an interesting interview if anyone is, interest, gets hold of the Six Million Dollar Man box set he, there's some interviews with characters and, and uh, Richard Anderson's one of the bonus features and it's, a, uh, it's it's entertaining it's entertaining everything about it is entertaining uh, just listening to the, the, the impact that this thing has had on people um, so but they're not very friendly are they in this one
1: no it's very um, there's um, it, it's 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 a little contentious,
0: Mm-hmm. and yeah. I think Steve still feels like Oscar may have set him up. Yeah, because he gets to that safe and it's empty. Is that a, is that supposed to be an echo of what happened in the previous movie?
1: Well, you know that kind of makes me wonder. I mean, because I, this really, I mean, there's no there's no doubt about it. This is a reboot of some sort. I mean, I mean, obviously we're not going to get the full blown origin down to the very you know and thank goodness gritty. I mean, but we got a recap on that we got it we got a recap on the the whole thing but now i mean oliver's gone now oscar's there so it's there they've completely flirted with with history in terms of uh established facts for the first film a lot of those a lot of those have just been now tossed out and now we have this new new canon i guess for lack of a better term that is being uh put in place um where was i going with this i don't know (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's sort of organic, like the way these films grow. Mm. It's just, you just follow a path, and then when you get to your point, we, we make it and go. I, uh, yeah, it, it's it's it is a reboot. It is a not that they had that term, but it, well, it's a retooling. I mean, we see that a lot, I and mean, you see that a lot in when in pilots. I mean, how many times have you watched a TV series and? I don't know, eight, ten episodes in, suddenly there's an episode that just does not fit. Everything's wrong about it. The way people interact with each other is wrong. Maybe the clothes they wear are wrong, or the cars they drive, or the building, or the the office, and you're just like, well, what's going on here? And, And that is because they made a pilot. The pilot was strong enough to sell it, but the network probably had some thoughts about what would make it more marketable, and so they retool it, and they, you know, they probably never intend to show that, but they start making the series and they get eight, 10 episodes in and they have a week to fill and they haven't got a schedule making. And then those pilots get thrown in there and you see it used to see it all the time. Yeah. I, I can think of lots of shows where I've, you just catch that episode and you're just like, what the heck? Um, in fact, I, I was watching I was watching uh, Perry Mason a while back, and I think I was like 20 episodes in to the series, back in the days when they had almost 50 episodes a year, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. And and suddenly, just like, everything's wrong. Just everything feels wrong. The, you know, his hairstyle is wrong, and the, the way he's interacting with Della and Paul Drake is all wrong. And, and it wasn't until it wasn't quite a bit later that I found out that it was, that was the pilot. That was the test episode that they'd made, and uh, they just flung it in. 20 down the road and it, you just feel it you can just feel the complete change in in the story without any explanation you're just like oh, this is not right uh <clears throat> So that's what we've got here, we've got Here we've just we've got they've retooled the show and they've said this is going to be a different style and and we're we're never going to show anybody that episode the first one I ever again anyway so let's go yeah it's I don't I
1: it's it's retconning
0: yeah I don't even know if they really were planning on making a series
1: at this point I don't well apparently not well you know it's a good question maybe they just wanted to kind of test the waters or maybe again they just thought you know it's a good enough you know we we could we've got enough uh, programming going on in terms of regular television shows so we'll let you do a movie every so many months the and TV it, movies were big yeah TV movies are huge in fact NBC at the time um, on oh god I can't remember which weeknight but they had a rotating TV movie detective
0: History, yeah
1: so detective series so yeah TV movies were massive they were they were enormous um, I remember uh, on CBS there were a number of uh, Incredible Hulk TV movies so yeah, yeah they were they made, terribly popular
0: oh you know we could we could do the whole thing. the the two or three pilot movies that they did before they went to series is at least is at least two mm. huh. well later on fusion patrol <laughs> <laughs> i think we know we're going on that one um
1: but yeah, probably but, but yeah but yeah but yeah having you know doing the, the TV movies is probably a good thing and then at one point I'm sure ABC you know there was there was a vacancy something opened up and they thought you know these
0: TV movies
1: are doing really well for us mm-hmm. let's see if we can get you know get you know give them a, an offer to do a television series
0: yeah it's possible and you know and the James Bond format makes more sense with the idea of it being movies yeah every once in a while because the you know, you can kind of have the big, the big spy adventure kind of thing. So yeah, we're, we're, of course, pure speculation. But yes, uh, um, and I, I will say, <laughs> I will say this. Um, say what you will for the, the directing or the acting or, or, or the production values of this thing. There were times, and I give you an example, towards the beginning when Steve is on the boat and the bad guys are got him cornered in the room and they, they're going to open the door and come in the room. There is like a shot of the guy creeping up in the doorknob, in the polished mm-hmm. doorknob. And I'm not going to say that that's oh so artistic but at the same time it means they were thinking about it you know this is not just stand up the camera standard two shot you know coverage on each guy in a two shot and then go they were they were trying to do something there there mm-hmm. are a few flourishes throughout the episode that make you think that they were trying uh, to be just a little bit above and beyond bog standard <sighs> That it was terribly successful, but but you know it's there. And when I would see those points, I would think, oh, all right, they were they were. And I guess you could probably do that with a TV movie as opposed to a series because you'd have a, a little bit more time, mm, yeah, going into it. Um, let's see, what have we got about the plot itself? Um, of course. Oscar is much more manipulative. Oh,
1: very much so. And that's why it. he felt a little bit like Oliver in this one. A little bit. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think they were still trying. Yeah, And, I, you know, in back going back to the books, Oscar Goldman is um, an efficient Mandarin with an intelligent one. Um, he's got, he also has some high degrees in um, technical subjects, so he's not just a paper pusher, but he is yeah. again, I think they're portraying everybody as the best of the best because we're American. Yeah. and well I you know I that's definitely what they're going for mm. uh, in in that in that zone so um yeah he could be manipulative and and it gets Steve's friend involved in it so i mean everybody at the os the os oh is it osi in this one is it oso it's still oso it'll become osi in the series um they had uh, also in the richard dean anderson uh, and he's talking about the fact that it was originally called the office of special operations and, yeah and they got a call <laughs> saying uh we actually have an oso so that's why they changed the name mm apparently it was a real thing. I guess you couldn't have, we couldn't be like part of the CIA or something because that would be real. And, and then, you, you, and, and that may be true. You know, at one point you never, you never named a real organization. Uh, at the, so. Let's see. <clears throat> I don't know what I've got. It kind of, it's kind of a facile story. Yeah, that's the sad <laughs> part about it.
1: I mean, a lot of it is just Steve, you flirting with Brett and uh getting it on with Sin?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sin. Oh, for crying out loud. Could we try to come up with a James Bond female name? Mm. My name's Sin. My name's okay. Sin. Yeah. Um that was that fit with the characters. Um Oh, oh! I have one written down here. Sorry. I have one written down here. It's just, just to give you, if you haven't had a chance to watch this, listeners, uh, and you, and you want to ask yourself whether or not they're really going for the James Bond. Look, uh, at one point in the film, Steve has been kidnapped by the Russians because they think he's he's totally innocent at this point. But they think he's an American competitor because they're trying to get back basically their ballistic missiles that they've lost. And at the same time, when they find out the Americans have a ballistic missile that they've lost, they want that real bad, too. And they think Steve's the competitive bidder. So they kidnap him, and instead of killing him because he's Alexi's friend, David McCallum's character... Uh, they put him out on a boat many miles out to sea. And they say, hey, look, we'll make you a deal. You can go fishing and uh, enjoy yourself, but we're not taking... Or we'll kill you. So he agrees to go along with this. Britt Eklund's out on the boat with him as well. Uh, and at some point, he finally gets flirty, friendly with Britt. And they have sex. And then after they have sex, he ties her up and busts out the window. And he says to her, and I quote, Sorry I had to violate your porthole. Wow. What a euphemism. Wee oui, boy. <clears throat> and you just like well the twelve year old in Glen Larson was having a field day with that one. Uh, that
1: so, one
0: th- uh, 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 That one was the worst. That, that, that it, one yes. was the worst. It
1: it left me it it left me speechless, that one. <laughs> it, because it, I thought, yeah. wow, I mean 70s television and they're they're trying to sell that one. Okay. I mean, he had just
0: busted her porthole. True, but the So what the he usage... said was totally, totally accurate. I mean, and yet anybody, different. If you came up with something dirty out of that, that's just, that's on your dirty mind. That's your dirty mind, not, not the writer's, because he was just talking about a porthole, okay? okay. It's just a porthole that mm. Steve violated. Um, so, oh, there's also a line, and I think it's kind of interesting- um, and and characterizes it different from um, Oliver Spencer from the first. And we asked the question, you know, how far would Oliver go? And I think Oliver would go a long, long way. But in this, um, Oscar sends Steve out on a mission. And Steve kind of thinks it might have been a scam mission because there's nothing there. But to all intents and purposes, it was not. Oscar was expecting to get what he sent Steve to get. Mm-hmm. This was not meant to be a suicide mission, unlike the first one or a failure mission. Steve has a girl in Alexandria who helped him, and we have a little scene with her on the balcony, and he sends her away. We later learn that she was killed, mm-hmm. which ticks Steve off, no end. Um, And we find that out when Steve's in the hospital, but Steve wants no part of this mission, no part of this mission. Now he's, now he's sad because the girl got killed because of him. Halfway through the film, after Oscar has tricked Steve into being out here and being in the next place over and, uh, you know, get, getting on board with the same arms dealer. At that point, they reveal to Steve that the arms dealer is the one that killed the girl. Mm-hmm. And he goes, why didn't Oscar tell me? And they go, because he wasn't sure. And he wasn't going to use that to make you go after this guy. Unless it was true. And Steve says, well, maybe I found his limit. And I think that's the big difference between him and Spencer. I I think I think they are trying to I think they're trying to position Oscar in a place where we know he has a decency limit that he won't violate, and that mm. they didn't really convey that with Spencer because all that talk about turning Steve off and leaving him in the you know it's like yeah no that that guy doesn't have limits. Even if he was half joking, he wasn't he was he was absolutely testing Rudy to see if Rudy would go along with it mm-hmm. so uh you know i I feel like that was setting this up to say we're going to make more of these i I can see that you know here's here's our opportunity. we've got to set this character Oscar, even though he's not in it much you know we're 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 world building mm-hmm. basically uh, the uh, the dynamic between the two um. So Steve um, escapes through her porthole. Oh.
1: Wow! I can't believe you just said that.
0: <laughs> well, it's true. And if you thought anything dirty about that, it's it's on you, not on. And my we bu- and, and you and I both <laughs> chuckled. Uh, <laughs> Um, He follows them out by getting in the back of a car And finds that they do in fact have nuclear weapons Are nuclear weapons Finds out about the sub plot Which is kind of irrelevant They've got some nerve gas on a sub And they're going to beam a signal out to it And kill everyone on the sub And then salvage the sub Okay, there We've dispensed with that part of the plot That doesn't go through Steve stops it Okay um, but, but it comes, kind of, it came very, very close. It was a very, very close thing. Um, at the end, they get down into this amazing silo thing mm-hmm. that this guy's got built under a... It's a wheelhouse, a um, roundhouse. Yeah, under, under, under a, under a funeral uh, place thing. Yep. Cemetery, <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for. Under a, under a cemetery, a big cemetery on this, um caribbean island i think it's unnamed caribbean island if i'm not mistaken that may be the name of it unnamed um and they're hiding down there and steve does some stuff and in the end when our hero or our villain opens the last silo with the american nuclear weapon on it it goes off. We end the episode with an atomic explosion. With a, with, yeah, with the bomb going off. Yeah, with a mushroom cloud mm-hmm. blowing whole, out over bit. this carib- unnamed Caribbean island, and radioactive
1: materials spreading all and over. And that's the place.
0: it. Yeah, then episode's over. Freeze frame. End of story. We don't even get to see him get to bed. Again and violate her porthole more. No, that uh, no. The, the
1: the atomic bomb was able to serve two purposes. One to let us let everybody know that yes, Steve was victorious in his mission, and B to symbolize
0: Steve violating her porthole. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Is um I show you a mushroom cloud. Yeah. Uh, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, <say> no more. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> like, Okay, so that one—that one was the writer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was terribly, terribly awful. Of <laughs> it, it, it was,
1: and uh, we're it gonna was. get hate mail for that one. But God, it was funny. Yeah. So I—I—I um,
0: I, I don't know how I feel about that ending. I—I I don't know that it's you can not, just it's end, stop. You can't end a show with a, a nuclear weapon going off in the Caribbean on an island, a populated island, presumably. <laughs> Presumably it's populated because there's like beach houses and a, a massive cemetery. And if there's a massive cemetery, there must be a lot of dead people and to have a lot of dead people. You have to have an indigenous population. I don't think, I don't think people pay to be flown to this Island to be buried, uh, you know, in the Bahamas. Right. <laughs> or wherever and it was. So uh, yes, they just set that off in a, what's probably a relatively densely populated
1: urban area. Yeah. And what I love is, and I don't care. Okay. Yes. We've, found out in this episode because of the little boosters that uh, Dr. Rudy has managed to put into Steve's legs. He can now run up to like, I think it's 65 miles per hour. But even going at 65 miles per hour, there is no way that he is going to run far and fast enough to escape the uh, the detonation.
0: I have a theory in watching this. I, I remember this ending on an atomic weapon exploding from the first time I watched it, which was, by the way, the, when I got the DVD set. Uh, I had never seen this one before. Um, but I rem- you know, I watched that, and I remember it ending on the atomic explosion, and I remember thinking, you've got to be kidding me. We, you couldn't detonate an atomic Atomic explosion down in america without being i don't know probably problems yeah national um <laughs> oh yeah there be repercussions no question norad nuking russia um you know all, all sorts of things that could have happened there and um or vice versa mm-hmm. and um i i i'm wondering if that was meant to not be an atomic explosion i'm wondering if that was supposed to be the missile blowing up without detonating And that they just stupidly chose a mushroom cloud for their stock footage. Uh, no. I think it was supposed to be... eh. I'm trying. I'm trying because I find that that incredibly irresponsible of Steve, too. This is how I'm going to kill the guy? When he opens this gate, I'm going to detonate a nuke?
1: Well, that's like burning down a house if you've got a spider in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Especially, surely he could have done something. (laughs) Surely he could have done something to kill that guy. Um, And I think that's kind of one thing about this episode is um, I feel Steve isn't very good at this job. I'm sure no, he would it, agree with you. If you look at the future, spoilers, there's going to be a TV series after this. It's going to run a few years. It's going to be enormously popular. Um, if you look in the future, this kind of odds, when he was on the boat, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like the odds were so much against him that he couldn't have gotten out of this. And here in the silo, again, I'm feeling like he's got the bionic advantage, but they're not using it. Uh huh. And... Well they they've been downplaying the whole bionics for some time now. Uh well
1: some time, I mean two movies now. We've never really we know that as the, as the series comes on and it gets developed that he does some really, you know, superhuman things uh in ways that uh just really emphasize the fact that yes, he's he's a cyborg. But yeah. what we're getting here, it's it's instead what we're seeing are Really unbelievably efficient prosthetics.
0: Yeah, pretty much in most cases, except for the running bit and yeah. uh, the occasional, occasional ripping a safe out of the wall. Worth the swimming, definitely the swimming. That's um, kind of an interesting thing, um, and and maybe maybe it has to do with expectations, and okay, maybe it has to do, or maybe it has to do with convention or or whatever the case may be. But I have been watching the Six Million Dollar Man, and I'm in the fourth year flying through the disc set. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, I don't, I don't think it's unique to the fourth year. I think it's uh, throughout the series. There is a shared joke. Um, can't remember the term for it right off the top of my head. Um, but when you are watching the episode and they capture Steve and things are looking really bad and, and the villains are really happy and they they tie him to a chair and then they turn their backs on him. The whole time that they're, tar- they're tying him to the chair, you know, they're not going to keep him in that chair. Right. Right. This is like we've just put you in a locked room that says insert sonic screwdriver here for Doctor Who or whatever the, the case may be you absolutely positively know that this is not um something that's going to hold our guy so you as the audience have this shared experience with Steve this you know something that the that the bad guys don't know and so you're in a position of superior knowledge to their situation and 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 it, it's kind of what makes you feel good about it mm. it, it really is you're watching it you're thinking <laughs> You know, there's a little chuckle. There's there's a little bit of joy in in your watching it because you know <laughs> You know it's like, Well now Steve, you're going to have to complete the third Indian test. You have to run to the top of that hill in thirty seconds carrying a two hundred pound totem pole. <laughs> it's like and you know, you're just like, Really? Okay, let's watch this. <laughs> Um, and um, there's none of that in this. Mm, no. In fact, when you're watching it, if you're steeped in The Six Million Dollar Man, it's just the opposite. You're like, really? Come on. Well, there is one... Let's go. <laughs> there
1: is one thing that happened here that I thought was interesting, and it might serve... I mean, I, I don't recall... I don't think I remember what the first episode is of the series, although something in the back of my head says that I actually did watch it, but I don't remember. But something happens in this one, and that is... Steve twice manages to break a glass with his right hand, and both times occur when he's angry. The adrenaline caused a power surge, just like it does yes. with any normal human being. Yes. So, so bionics respond the same way as uh, organic muscles do with, with uh, adrenaline. But I think uh, what we may be seeing is possibly an explanation as to, and I, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm holding out. This is a fool's hope. I admit this, but wouldn't it be really cool if by the time they got into the series, they explain his sudden jump in abilities, pardon the pun, because of either a certain enhancements or things that are going on on a physiological level that they did not anticipate?
0: Yeah, no. No, they're not going to do that. Yeah, I figured then, so. Then not. <laughs> I, I figured and, they And weren't. now that you mention it, in, in, in light of our discussion... Last week, when we were talking about Space 1999, New Adam, New Eve. Where did we go with that? Nowhere. Not really. He has that glass break on him twice, and he and that's you know, it. reports it to Rudy. And Rudy says, oh, yeah, we figured it out. We ran the simulation. It's adrenaline. It's causing it to pop up thing. Don't worry about it. When you come back, it's a simple fix. We'll yeah. fix it. And it's done. Never causes him a uh-uh. problem. It, it, no. You know, it's it's not Chekhov's gun here. No. If you show the gun in the first act, exactly. you have to use it in the third. Well, if you show his breaking... Is glass breaking. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to use it, but it's, they don't. It's
1: the perfect smoking gun, and, and it, it never gets used. So that it is a very peculiar plot point, and I wondered about that myself.
0: Yeah, I... I <clears throat> yeah, no, just, just um, for a reference point, uh, Population Zero is the first episode of Six Man, Man, and that's the one where they ripped off the Andromeda Strain. Um, it's not ringing a bell, but... Yeah, it's a town. They they actually use all the footage from Andromeda Strain for the town with everyone's dead. And oh, everything. cool! Yeah, so. Uh, so they went straight to science fiction kind of stuff in the very in the very first of the the series, which uh, as opposed to spy. Just, just saying that maybe a, you know first turn there um what else have we got here um he is a colonel Mm -hmm. um they've kind of forgotten the whole civilian astronaut thing um i I don't i don't know that there's anything else uh it 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 is a facile story it
1: is it's it's poor that's all there's to it i mean it's it's a it's a poor episode poor movie especially in light of how good the first one was in terms of some of the science and the human psychology that was involved uh this one is a this one's a it's a disappointment
0: yeah do you Remember, woo, way back when we went from um, the first Man from Atlantis film to the second Man from Atlantis. Oh film. Oh my God! The was... Right? the whole, in quality the whole mili- was the military angle was dropped yeah. and all that stuff in favor of the the Oceanographic Institute or wherever the heck it was. God,
1: it, it was so awful.
0: Um, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's just it's that retooling, and this one I think was not as successful as we would have we would have liked. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, anything
1: else? I got absolutely, um, do I have anything else? Um, oh, you know, one little thing, one little tiny thing, and this is something that I actually liked. And it's a scene between Steve and Sin. And uh, he's just received an invitation to go to a, a party, I guess, or a gathering uh, from Findletter. Mm-hmm. And he, Steve asks Sin if she's heard of him. Now, considering that this is 70s television, there was always this tendency to overplay the hand. Because you have to assume that your audience doesn't know a thing. At least that's kind of the way they played it. They, they, they didn't really assume that the audience was smart enough to catch on really quickly. Quickly, so they would overplay the hand. But when, uh, when Steve asks Sin if she's actually heard a Finn letter, and maybe this was pure accident, who knows, but the actress really underplayed it in a beautiful way, but smooth, to where I just happen to be looking at her character when Steve asks the question, and she does this quick little... Um, thing with her eyes but her voice never stutters there's never any pause it she just speaks totally smoothly as you know saying "Noah, i have no idea you know i've never heard of him before and it's just it's just it's a little tiny thing but it it was one it was the one thing that for me stood out in terms of the quality of the story
0: Hmm. I, i think that may be slightly diminished by if if i'm recalling correctly steve's next line then is all right we'll go get undressed it is it is yeah that's what I thought. Um, uh, another one of those another one of those uh psych outs. He's not telling her to go get undressed for sex. He's telling her to go get undressed because he's decided they're going to go swimming and she needs to change into her swimwear.
1: Right. But oh, but the innuendos. But that's not how he phrases the line. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the innuendos are really coming through the portholes here. Dope. And <laughs> It's a violation. Uh, Whoo. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think we might have to
0: leave it at that. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so too. The next episode movie of the Six Million Dollar Man is the Solid Gold Kidnapping. And boy, if that doesn't sound like a ripoff of the third James Bond film Goldfinger, I don't know what else would. Um, got go- had to get gold into that third. Oh, one. of course, of course. All right, well, Ben, thank you for joining me. Oh, what a thrill! <laughs> And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Please consider becoming our sponsor at patreon.com fusionpatrol fusion patrol. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Stop by and visit us at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Search for us on Facebook under Fusion Patrol. Check out our Twitter handle at Patrol. Or just send us an email at feedback at FusionPatrol.com. Please come join the conversation. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf.